Built Not Born, episode 25. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Dave Duda. Dave Duda is the athletic director of Delaware Valley University in Pennsylvania. Dave, a native of Narstown, PA, shares his remarkable story of resilience and leadership both on and off the basketball court. In high school, Dave was a standout basketball player at Bishop Kenrick under legendary coach Phil Martelli. At the age of 15, during his sophomore season, Dave tragically lost his dad to a sudden heart attack. Overnight, Dave went from idolizing his father to becoming the man of the house. After high school, Dave continued his basketball career at Spring Garden College, where he was named a two-time honorable mention All-American. Upon graduating college, Dave Duda began his coaching career as the top assistant to Naismith Hall of Fame coach Herb McGee, the all-time winningest coach in NCAA Division II history at Philadelphia University. During Dave's time at Philadelphia University, the Rams had their most successful period in school history and were the winningest Division II basketball school in the country with 171 wins and just 35 losses, including 80 straight home wins. Dave then took his first head coaching job at Delaware Valley University, where he took over a team that was 0-23 and led that team to a 12-12 record during his first season, which earned Dave the Conference Coach of the Year Award. Dave then was hired as the head coach at Widener University. Under Coach Duda, Widener enjoyed its greatest success since the mid-80s, won the conference championship, had the first Sweet 16 appearance since the mid-80s, and Dave was again named Coach of the Year for both the conference and the Mid-Atlantic region. Dave Duda was then reunited with coach Phil Martelli and spent 13 seasons as the head assistant coach for the St. Joseph University Hawks. During Dave's time at St. Joe's, the Hawks made three trips to the NCAA tournament, including two Atlantic 10 championships. Dave also served as the program's lead recruiting coordinator and developed two NBA players, Langston Galloway and DeAndre Bembry. Dave and I discussed what he learned from spending 20 years with two legendary coaches. Why leaders have to learn to put their egos aside and learn the art of delegation and why the best leaders lead by inclusion. We also discuss the importance of learning and mastering the basics in both in sports and in life. And just a quick note of thanks to all the listeners. 24 episodes in to this podcast experiment, Built Not Born has passed the 2,500 download mark. For that, I thank you. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dave Duda, two-time honorable mention All-American, athletic director of Delaware Valley University, former head basketball coach of Widener University and former head assistant coach for the St. Joseph University Hawks and one awesome dude. And remember, life is built, not born. Dave Duda, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Glad to be part of it. Oh, we're excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, Who are you and what do you do? I'm Dave Duda, Director of Athletics at Delaware Valley, but my career has encompassed a big part of basketball coaching and administrative work. Where did you grow up? Chick, I've been fortunate. I've been in the area all my life. I grew up in uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania, went to school locally, both high school and college, and I've been very fortunate to be a coach and not have to relocate my family, which is very rare in the field that I've been in for over 30 years. You have a remarkable journey from a star in high school, All-American in college, and your coaching career, coaching under two legends, Herb McGee and Phil Martelli. 
Yep. I uh, want to get into all of that, what you're doing now at DelVal, taking over a program that you once coached at, now being the athletic director. But I want to start off all the way at the beginning. What was it like around the dinner table at your home when you're around, say, 10 years old? Yep. Who was there? What was going on? I have an interesting dynamic because and I like talking to kids who have maybe had the same experience as I did. When I started 10 years old, it was the traditional family, mom, dad, dad was a blue collar worker. Mom was a stay at home mom. I had myself and my sister and uh, everything centered around sports in our house. My, my father helped coach a lot of the teams that I was on. And then at the age of 15, when I was 15, my father passed away of a heart attack and it really changed that family dynamic. I went from a young kid who was really relying on my father to being the man of the house at 15. And it's weird in, in my experiences of coaching, I've always had soft spots for kids who maybe lost a parent and had to go through a situation like that. Or if you came from a single parent family and there wasn't a father figure, I could really relate to that. But I was fortunate because my father taught me a lot of life lessons in 15 years that maybe a lot of people didn't get the opportunity to have. The dynamic at 10 was one thing. And then a couple of years later, it was something totally different. Wow. That moment you said at 15. So at 15, you're probably maybe junior in high school. I was, a, I was a sophomore and it happened in October, three days before basketball tryouts. So I didn't have much time to really take it all in. I, I didn't really realize till years later, the people involved in my life, coaches, friends, family who were trying to take care of me because you're just so young and you don't know how to react. But there were so many people in my life at that time made sure that I stayed the person that I was. And uh, sports played a big part in it because it occupies so much of your time. And I had so many people looking after me who I was so much more appreciative later in my life when I look back on it and say, wow, look at all those people that, that took care of me. At that really impressionable time at 15, when you lost your dad, what's the most vivid memory where you went from your dad, one of your biggest influences in your life, and then all of a sudden he's not there? There's such a void because I could just remember playing CYO at St. Paul's, all the sports I played, and it was either talking about the game or after the game. And my father was so close with so many of my friends that you'd come home and you'd just be like, who do you tell this to? You could tell your mom, but it's not the same as telling your father. It was such a void that the thing that kept me going was I could hear him saying to me, just keep doing what you do. He would want me to play and be a good player and all those kinds of things. I was fortunate I could hear the lessons that he told me prior to, and they just kind of stuck in my head. It's hard because you have a void in your life that it's really hard to replace. When you go through something like that, how long does it take to sink in at 15 years old? What's that process like? Wow. You know, you know, Chick, I, I guess everybody handles it differently. I don't think I handled it the best way, but how I handled it was there was anger because I felt, why did this happen to me? But I also kept a lot of it in because I wanted to prove I'm a man and I'm tough and I'm not going to break down and I'm not going to do that. And I didn't do that till years later where I let all that out a little and let the guard down a little bit. People try to help me and I'm like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I really wasn't good, but <laughs> that was the front that I put out there. And years later when I was able to process it a little bit more, but it, I think it was just the survival thing. Everybody, there's no textbook when that happens. Hey, look up on page 57 and you should act this way and you should act that way. There was no textbook. So I handled it in the way that I thought was appropriate. But looking back, I'd say maybe I didn't do everything right. Who knows? During that time period, you're playing basketball for Bishop Kenrick High School under a legendary coach, which you have further history down the road, Phil Martelli. Yep. And then you have a great players on the team like yourself, Brian Leahy on yep. the squad. So what's it like trying to compete? How do you silo that so you could be there for your teammates, but still process everything? It's really interesting because, as I said to you, start, I didn't appreciate all the people in my life at that time who played a part in filling that void. And so it started with Phil because there were times where he just talked to me about things that didn't involve basketball at that time. You know what I mean? Hey, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. Hey, if your mom knew you did that, how would she feel? Those kinds of things. So he filled that. 
I had a great group of friends, uh, both male and female. A person that you knew, BJ at that time, Mr. Marchese was an influence in my life as an, as an older guy that took a lot of interest in me and helped. There were just so many people involved in my life, really good friends, both male and female, that I shared things with that helped me. So there, there was such a good support system. And the basketball program that I was in, the key word was program. We didn't have a team. We had a program. So that helped because the program ran all year long, summer leagues, workouts, postseason. So there really wasn't a lot of time that you just sat still. You were always doing something. So I thought being part of a program really meant something to me. And then one of the things I've learned years later, and Phil always said this, he said, there's something in the water about that Kenra community because they always look after one another. And they do. I see it now, even with the generation that I was a part of, how they continue to take care of one another. So I think I was very fortunate that we that I wasn't part of a basketball team. I was really part of a, a program. And that means guys who were ahead of me coming back. And then the younger generation that was coming up, I thought that was such a blessing to me. If someone asked you senior year in high school, what do you wanted to be when you grew up? What do you think the 18-year-old version of Dave Duda would have said? I know exactly what I would have said. And it's like everybody else that I have no idea. I really at 18 had no idea. When I was going to college, I wish that I would have known what I wanted to do. I didn't. All I wanted to know is I wanted to continue to play basketball. I had no idea where that was going to take me. It wasn't until I got into college and we all realized at some point, like, wow, we're not going to the NBA. <laughs> so we got to do something. And the only thing that I knew was that I wanted basketball to continue to be a part of my life. And that's when the coaching bug started. And it's really interesting because the school that I wanted to go to out of college, I wanted to go to Philadelphia Textile. That was the school that I wanted to go to. They had recruited me for a period of time. And at the end of the day, there was two, there was one scholarship and they chose somebody else. And I was hurt by that because I felt like I didn't get what I wanted to get. But it was strange how that worked because that was the way that I met Coach McGee, who I ended up working for. It was an interesting process. But at 18 years old, there's a lot of kids, guys and girls don't know what they wanted to do. And that was me at 18. I knew I wanted to go to college. I know I wanted to play basketball, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You wind up, you're going to Spring Garden College where you're a two-time honorable mention All-American, which is really cool. You go from Spring Garden, then you began your coaching career with Herb McGee at Philadelphia yep. Textile. Yep, yep. How did you reconnect with Herb and join his coaching staff? I knew I wanted to coach. The coaching profession has changed so much. Now, you got to remember, this is probably... This is 1988, 89. And in those days, the Division I programs were not structured like they are today, where you have a video guy, an ops guy, a graduate assistant. You either had to be one of the three assistants, and some didn't even have three assistants at that time, paid jobs, but you had to get your foot in the door. And everybody told me, going back to Phil said, look, when you start this, you want to go somewhere where you're going to learn and there's success. Obviously, I knew of the success coach McGee had and textile program. So he had a part-time job available. That's all they were at that time were part-time assistant jobs. So I took one. I had to find a full-time job to go with it because you had to make money of some type. And at that time in, in the uh, archdiocesan grade schools, you did not need a teaching degree to teach in first through eighth grade because they had a shortage of teachers. I started teaching at St. Pat's in Norristown, and I would work there till three o'clock, and then I would go do another full-time job at Textile. It was such a great experience because not only was I able to work for a Hall of Famer, but he helped shape you know, my basketball world and the thoughts of how I wanted to coach. It was someone that was different than Phil. Phil had his beliefs. Herb did it a little bit differently, but it gave me another great perspective in coaching and I was really lucky at a young age to get that opportunity to do both things. Quick recap of your time at Textile University, now Philadelphia University, yep. seven seasons there. It was the most successful period in school history. And at that time that you were there as an assistant with Herb McGee, the winningest Division II school in the country with uh, 171 wins to 35 losses. Crazy. 
Yeah, Chig, it was insane. You just felt like you never lost. And and it gave, I was a bit skewed because when I first got my head coaching job, I was like, I guess it's easy. You know what I mean? I guess it's easy to win. And it's not. We also, during that time, had won 80 consecutive home games, which was an NCAA record. It almost felt like you were invincible at home. Like we, we just couldn't lose. It really was. It was an unbelievable run. I was looking for that next opportunity to come along. After seven years of doing a head coaching job came along. I had a goal. I wanted to be a head coach before the age of 30. I was able to accomplish that when Delaware Valley had their opening and I was named the head coach there when I was 29 years old. So I felt like I had accomplished something because I got a full-time job in basketball. And that was really my goal when I started coaching. Getting back to Herb McGee, a Philadelphia coaching legend, what are some of the lessons you learned from Coach McGee that you implement, you bring to your coaching? Yeah, when you work for a Hall of Fame guy, you think from the outside, the perspective would be he probably teaches basketball at a level that's so far above everybody else. And I would have said the opposite. He kept things really simple, but he was very exact. So what I mean by that, he, he was such a good offensive coach that everybody would say, man, he's so good at getting so-and-so a shot or executing offense. But there were days in practice as a young coach, I would say, wow, this is so monotonous. Meaning if he told you take seven steps on a 45 degree angle and then pop out, if you took five steps, we would do it again. If you took five steps at a 35 degree angle, we would do it again. And we would do it again. Everything was so exact. And that was the biggest thing that I took from him. He kept it simple, but you did it exactly the way it was diagrammed to work. And that's why I thought we were so efficient in every area of the game. And that was what I took from him. And one of my most proud moments during my head coaching career was when a lot of the coaches that I competed against said, one of the hardest things of playing against your teams is you get exactly who you want to shoot the ball, the right shot. And that's what I would have said about her. That's what he was good at. That made me proud that I was like a disciple that learned that part and took that part on in my own way. Synthesizing what masters of their craft do. So you look at Herb, like his leadership style, you're saying he simplifies the complex. Yep. Then he basically gives you crystal clear objectives and expectations, like seven steps, 45 degree angle, yep. like yep. no ambiguity there at all. Nope. You know exactly what you need to do. And yep. he wants you to master the basics. There's no, okay. And then the one thing that all coaches have to have this, but I think there's the great ones have this. And that's what separates him is that he would describe the game to our team before the game. And it, usually it would go right to script. Like, for example, he would say he, he had an expression and it's a funny expression. If we were on the road, he would say, look, this team's going to come out with piss and vinegar. They're going to be all over us. They're going to have a lead by 12. And then by halftime, we'll settle the game down. And, and the game would go exactly that way. And almost like he visualized the game before it started. He was able to see things that maybe the normal coach did not see. Getting back to the program, you mentioned that Herb McGee set up a textile, 80 straight wins at home. That doesn't happen by accident. What's repeatable of what you saw happening at textile that you think you could pick up and bring somewhere else? What systems do they have in place? I think I took basic offensive principles that he believed in. Like now, again, I don't want to, I would never bore an audience with X's and O's of basketball, but one of his concepts was the ball has to go side to side. You have to move the defense. And then, he, then it might be something like, Hey, whatever you're doing on this side of the floor, you have to do something on the opposite side to occupy the help. So they're just things that someone might take and say, you take it to your next job. And that's what I think I did. I'm not going to do the exact same things that he did, but I'm going to take those concepts. So when you would implement your system, you'd say, well, am I doing that? Whatever I'm doing here, does it incorporate those basic philosophies I think you could assess them and say, yes, no, and then check the boxes from there. It's, it's amazing how concepts like that repeat in totally different worlds. Uh, I was just reading a book on the secret service on how they protect the White House. And one of the things they use 
is that if there was something, say, on the south end of the White House, the team goes out to do the threat, but at the exact same time, the north end where nothing's going on, a whole team has the role and they occupy the space in the back to make sure nothing's going on back there. The same kind of concept. All of a sudden, the tide turns a little bit. You go from a program that can't lose at home, right? (laughs) You go to Delaware Valley College where is 0-23 the record? You take over a team that was 0-20 that couldn't win. Yeah, not only was it 0-23, but the average score of the team that I was hurting, they had lost, they had given up 82 points while scoring 50. So the point differential was minus 30. And, and it, I remember before I was taking the job, Herb said to me, he goes, you sure you want to do this? I think we could get you a better job. And I just said, look, I just want to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm a full-time basketball coach. That's what my job is. When I took it on, I had never seen a team play. And when I went in the office the first day, there was a box of videotape. So I pulled out a videotape and I put it in and it was a game that they had lost by 50 and it was at home. And the first thing I noticed that they didn't even pull the other side of the bleachers out. There was no one at these games and it was like one side of the bleachers. So I started watching this game and I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? I was like, my high school team would have beat this team. And I remember the first meeting that I had with my team, I took them in the weight room and then I had jump ropes. The stuff I was asking them to do, they were looking at me like sideways. And I was like, guys, can I ask you, you've never done this before? And they were like, no. And I was just like, oh my God, you're college players and you've never had any type of this training. And at that point, I kind of knew like, well, certainly I got to go get a whole new team here. So my first year, we put together some warm bodies because I got the job really late. And I actually thought one of my best coaching jobs that I did was my first year here because we only won four games, but we had the lead in 14 of the 24 games at the half. So I knew what we were doing and the scouting report was correct. We just didn't have any talent. And then year two here, we really had a ton of talent here. We had we did it with all freshmen. It was their first non-losing season in 20 years. The last game I coached here, the building was sold out. There was a lot of enthusiasm. So I I really was proud that we turned around a program in a short period of time, really playing all freshmen. So I was really proud, but I was also thankful that Delaware Valley gave me my first opportunity. A couple interesting facts for the first time at DelVal. You inherited a program, went 0-23. By the second year, you're 500, you're 12-12. You go from a team just getting smashed and no need to pull the bleachers out because nobody's coming to 12 and 12, right? You brought in, it says 25 freshmen in two years, just just sweeped out the whole program, all new talent, correct? Yeah, and we had a JV team as well. So that's why I was able to bring that. And I didn't anticipate, everybody asked you in an interview, how long is it going to take? I had no answers. I just said, look, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. Obviously, it helped that I was able to stay in Philly and we recruited a lot of Philly kids because of the contacts that I had. I was very proud because we had a lot of teams that were ranked in our league and two of the teams that beat us by 50 before I got here, Scranton and Lycoming, we beat them in year two. So I was really proud that we were able to turn that as quickly as we did. Then to cap it all off, you're named coach of the year for the conference. Yeah, but that that never really resonated with me because like I said, it's like anybody else. It's about your players. The players really make you look good. That's a nice thing to hang on a shelf or put on a wall, but it never really meant anything. I was more appreciative that your peers in the conference, because that's who votes for the award, respected the job that you did. That meant a little bit more to me. How'd you move to Widener? So all of a sudden you wind up at Widener University. Yeah, it was weird. I was in my office one afternoon. I was not looking for it. Widener was going through a unique transition. Widener had was the total opposite of DelVal. Tons of success. They had a coach there by the name of C. Allen Rowe, was a small college Hall of Famer. He had won close to 600 games there, and they changed his job. They got rid of the coach that successful. They were going through some problems. Team fell on some hard times. I think they won six games that year. They were on the other side of the league, so I really didn't see them that much. We didn't play that many teams on the other side of the league. And the phone rang, and it was Coach McGee. And Coach McGee said, Dave, look, I just took a phone call from the athletic director at Widener. Would you have any interest in that job? And I said, geez, I just got this job. I don't know. And then the same people, Coach McGee, and more importantly, circling back with Phil Martelli, our bridges continued to cross. Phil was a graduate of Widener. 
And when I asked for his advice, he said, Dave, what do you want to do at Division Three? I said, I want to win. He goes, well, do you think you could win the national championship at Del Val? I said, I don't know. He goes, I know you could win it at Widener because they've done that. They've got to a final four at Widener. He said, you're going to have a whole lot more. So I went to interview there with open eyes and I just thought there was a little bit more there, a little bit more resource, a little bit more academic programs to choose from. And I knew I didn't have to move my family. At that time, my wife and I, we had our first child. My daughter was a year old. We were looking to buy that first house. It was a little bit of a better offer. So I decided to take the challenge at Widener. And I was a little more confident because Widener wasn't as bad as DelVal. You're inheriting another last place team. But I knew that it wouldn't take much time to turn it there because I was confident in what we just did at DelVal. So I decided to take the job at Widener. History kind of repeats itself. Next thing you know, the, Widener enjoyed its greatest success under your leadership, 23-6 and six, Commonwealth Conference title. First NCAA Sweet 16 appearance, right? Since yep. uh, the yep. mid-80s. Yep. I know it doesn't mean much to you. Like you said, another coach of the year honor. And then uh, you make the Sweet 16. I was more proud. Actually, I thought in year two at Widener, we went, in my first year we won, I think we won 15 and made the playoffs. In year two at Widener, we actually were sixth in the country. And I thought that was my best team. We were 24 and four. And the way that the NCAA tournament works in Division Three, it's not like Division One where they slot you across the country. It's all regionalized. So to give you an example, in round two of the NCAA tournament, my team was ranked sixth, F&M's team was ranked seventh, and we played in the second round of the NCAA tournament. We happened to lose that game. They went on and went to the final four. And it's just the way that Division Three works. So that game that was probably a final four game was played in the second round. So I was disappointed because I thought that was my best team. The team you're referring to was a team that had my best player. We had a first team All-American on that team. And it was just a team that got better as the year went on. And the Sweet 16 ride was great. We had to go on the road. We, we beat the fourth ranked team in the country at their gym, York College, to get to the Sweet 16 and the game to get to the Elite Eight. We just played a bad game. We hadn't played a bad game in a long time, but we lost to William Patterson, who I didn't think was better than us. We just had a bad day, which that happens in the NCAA tournament, but I was really proud of that team. So Widener was a great run because it was an eight-year run that was as good as I could have. After my fourth year there, and the school came to me and asked me if I would be interested in being the athletic director and basketball coach. And at Widener, that was unique because that was the first time they were going to break that mold and the basketball coach was going to be the AD. So I enjoyed it because it put administrative duties on my resume. I had a strong support system, I had great assistant athletic directors, and it enabled me to do both jobs. But I grew so much there because I learned how a university works in addition to an athletic department because now I was part of the administration. I learned from so many bright people on the campus, the deans, different vice presidents, the president himself. It was just a terrific learning time for me. It really helped me develop into who I am. So you become, for the first time, the athletic director. Did you see that coming or was that a surprise? When they gave me administrative duties as the assistant athletic director, they knew that I could be a leader. They came to me right away and I was glad. Uh, there was a new president coming in. He had some visions that we both shared. I had outstanding bosses at Widener. There's so many people that helped guide me. Uh, and helped me grow as a leader. My first year as the athletic director, it was the only year of my career where I said to my wife at the end of the year, I said, I'm tired. And we're all tired physically a little bit. I was tired physically and mentally. And one of the mistakes I made in my first year as administrator, I said to my wife, it was the first year my team didn't perform that well. And the school thought I did a really great job as, a, as an administrator. But when I look back on it, I was doing everything myself. I didn't delegate anything. And I wanted everybody who asked me to do something, I said, yes. But it was the only year my team, I was always available for my team. And there were times that a, a player would ask me, coach, I need to see. You. And I would say, hey, could you make an appointment with my secretary? And I never did that. Mm -hmm. I was always there for them. So at the end of the year, I said, I have to delegate. I have to redistribute here. And I remade the department a little bit. I promoted two assistant athletic directors who helped jumpstart their careers. 
And I thought it became flawless. But that first year, I had to reassess my own self and say, wow, this isn't working because my program suffered at the expense of the department. It's such, such a great lesson in leadership that starts off with awareness. You, you realize your most important task there is helping your players and you're not available for them. They're going through an appointment schedule that, that yep. they get to you with. It should be almost instant or within the hour. You should be yep. able to speak with them. You reflected a little bit and then you probably had to put your ego aside to say, oh, I want to do everything. I'm the boss. And actually you had to start delegating things out and say, you, you would do this better than me. For a leader, how can they decide what is delegatable and what is non-negotiable? I do this, but someone else can do that. How did you decide that? I think the biggest thing was when you go from a position where, you know, when I was just a coach at Widener, the other coaches in the department, they're your peers. And then all of a sudden you have to go to a leadership position where now you're assessing them. I had to really look and say, what are the things that I'm not really good at? That's a hard thing for a leader to say, yeah, I'm not good at this. And then going, well, who is good at this? Who could make our department better because they're better at this than I am? I think as anyone who's a leader, you have to be able to assess yourself and you have to be able to look at yourself honestly and say, no, these were my warts. These are my flaws. And how do we improve on them? And that's really what I did. We had a lot of people in the department that had other talents that I had to bring out. I gave them a lot of responsibility. Increase in compensation helps that they take on more things. The restructuring made me better. More importantly, it made us as a department better. You learn how to delegate, you reflect, you let go of your ego a little bit. You have the awareness to know that you got to be there more for your players. Then you wind up for 13 seasons on Hawk Hill and you reconnect with coach Phil Martelli, who was your high school coach, but now a nationally known coach at St. Joe's. How do you reconnect with Phil and how do you join his staff? What led to that? The final four every year was a place where all the college coaches would have their coaching convention at. And a lot of interviews had would, would take place at that particular time. So we had so much success at Widener that I actually interviewed for a head division one job a couple times. And it was a job that I was really interested in about three years before that, my last year at Widener. And it's one of the things that opened up my eyes. I sat with an athletic director went through the whole interview process. And at the end of the day, he called me and said, Dave, uh, look, we're going to go in another direction. And it's not because we don't think you could do the job, but at the division one level, I have to win the press conference. And I could walk to the podium and say, we hired a division three coach from Widener. You're going to lose that press conference. Not say you wouldn't handle the press conference, but we would lose that press conference. And I just got to do that. So I asked him at that time, I said, yeah, but I have a proven track record that assistant that you're going to hire has never been a head coach because I totally understand that, but I'm trying to be honest with you. And at that point, I said to myself, if my ultimate goal was to be a head division one coach, and I said, I don't have division one experience on my resume. Phil and I had discussed it one other time and he had an opening in after the 06 season. He said, why don't we talk? because it wasn't going to disrupt my children's school and moving and that kind of thing. Phil and myself both agreed. They said, look, you'll probably be here for a couple of years. You'll get your opportunity and it'll work out great. So I decided to do that, not knowing that I would be there for 13 years. That certainly was not the goal. You're there for 13 years, three trips to the tournament, two A-10 championships, and you were also what, the lead recruiting coordinator? You led the recruiting? Yeah, yep. I was lead assistant. And I loved it because if anybody ever had a chance to work for someone, I'd say they should work for Phil. He's the greatest boss. He's not one of those guys pounding the table. He wants you to be part of your family. He wants you to become part of his family. He had tremendous trust in me in evaluating players. He gave me a lot of rope to grow. I had an unbelievable athletic director there, Don DeJulia, who was there for years. He taught me a lot. I learned so much from so many people there. I learned how to do it at the highest level where it was really cutthroat. I was a little frustrated because I had three really good interviews to be a a division one head coach, including one time where there was actually a contract in front of me and a donor got involved and uh, they wanted someone else. So I learned a lot about the process. I learned how hard it is to get that job. Like when a job opens and there's one opening and 200 people want the job, it's really challenging. And the one thing about division one basketball, 
there's only 350 jobs. Think about all the jobs across America. If you're an accountant, there's not 350 jobs. If you're a teacher. So it's so hard to get one of them. But I had such a great run there. Going back to my relationship with Phil, the local Narstown Kenrick community, how much they embraced he and I doing that together. Every time we'd win a big game, a million texts. I loved it because of the amount of people we could help out like for tickets and someone who was doing a fundraiser and all the goodwill that we can do. And we did together. And I always remember this chick. It was one of my proudest moments there. Our last team that made the NCAA tournament in 2016. NCAA tournament is so much fun because every time you win, it's more and there's it, it's such a big event. And I remember we were playing in Spokane, Washington. That's where we got sent. And we had won our first round game against Cincinnati. We were playing in the round of 32. We were playing on the main game Sunday night on CBS, and we were playing the number one seed in the West, Oregon. And the day before at the shoot-around, it's open. So all the fans come, and there's all kinds of media. And I remember me and Phil standing at half court, and we just looked up. And, we, and I remember saying to Phil, that's not bad for two guys who used to run around at a gym called McNamara Hall. Me as a player and he as a coach. And now you're in this 25,000 seat with everybody you ever watch on ESPN covering the game. And that's the greatest part of it is saying it was just two guys that used to hang out in Norristown in some tiny gym. And that's what can happen. And that's the greatest thing about opportunities, it still hurts me to this day, the way that ended. And especially for him, you know, because in ways... I thought I let him down and all the people that supported us down in some way. I want to touch on that in a second. What are some of the learnings you have under Coach Martelli that you bring with you? If you could boil Phil down, the legendary coach, into a couple bullet points or thoughts, what would it be? He was different, Chick, because he never wanted anyone to feel like they worked for him. He always wanted it to be, you work with me and I work with you. And I think that's a different style of leadership. There's a lot of guys who want to make it clear they're the boss and they're the authority. And don't get me wrong, Phil was the one that made the hard decisions, but he involved everybody in his program. But there's not many places you yourself could have walked into our offices, walked right down the hallway and said, hey, Dave, hey, Phil, I can't happen at most places. That's how he liked it. There were times the delivery guy would walk in and say, hey, Phil, you know, that's that was just our setting. It was a great place, but he led by inclusion. Everybody has a part in this. Everybody's a stakeholder. And it was unique because I don't know if you ever worked for someone that had their dream job. That was his dream job. There were days where I thought we would get done practice and he'd go out and do two speaking engagements at night, just promoting St. Joe's. And I'd be like, this guy has unbelievable energy, but it was all fueled by the passion he had for representing St. Joe's the word inclusion. And you hear it so much. Great leaders include people. They bring people along with them and they're inclusive. They don't shut out anyone. They, they rise everyone's boat at the same time. And you could see that when you guys were there. So great stuff. So when that ends, what's it like? It was such a great environment for you and, and you so much success and it happened for 13 seasons. What's it like when something that felt so right comes to an end? It was crazy. And again, going back to when I told you when my father died, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to react when you lose it. I think the way that I reacted or how I don't think it, it, it was the same for everybody involved. For me, the hardest part is because I look at St. Joe's fondly. I had great memories there, great people. A new administration came in and they wanted their own people. So it ended abruptly. But the first thing you go home and you feel, first you look at your family and say, God, I just let them down. You got to understand after 13 years, like my kids grew up as part of St. Joe's. So now, all of a sudden, it's a culture change. It's a total culture change. And you sit there and go, man, I, I felt that I let them down. I thought that there was a part of me that let Phil down, even though he would say I was not the case. And then all your friends. But you almost walk around in public like you have the scarlet letter on because it's such a it's a public job. So everybody knows what happened. There's people that lose jobs every day that we don't know about. But everybody knew this. It was a lead story. So you feel like you're walking around with a scarlet letter, so to speak. And until the next job came up, that's how I felt. It took me a real long time to get over that 
man, I let so many people down. I, I remember when Phil went on, uh, I think the morning show at, uh, with Angelo, it was weeks later and you could yep. just hear the emotion. It was still raw. You can tell just how unexpected it was. It's tough how public something like that is. How do you go full circle and come back to Del Valle as the athletic director? How's that happen? There were basketball opportunities for me. And I looked at them and said, most of those were out of the state and I had no problem going out of state, but my son at the time, David, my son played at Methacton High School and earned a scholarship to East Stroudsburg University. So he was starting his career there. And if I would have moved out of state and my permanent residence would have moved from Pennsylvania, his scholarship would have went to a different, and now it's an out-of-state student going to an in-state school. And I didn't want to do that to him. I didn't think that was fair to him because he earned that. So I said, well, first thing, let me look if see if I could stay in the state of Pennsylvania and at the time, Delaware Valley had the opening for the AD job. And obviously, I had some connections to the school, but there were over 100 applicants for this job. I went through the interview process. I said to my wife, for right now, this is something I have an interest in. Let me go after this. And fortunately, I landed back here. Now, there was no coaching involved. That fall of 19 was the first year, first time in 30 years I didn't have a team. So that was different ever diagram a play and send it down or anything like that. It's one of the things, Chick, I, I, I think that I tried to be hands off with oh. everything, especially with basketball. I didn't want anybody to think that for me at my stage, I, I certainly hope that I can impact some young coaches the way that I had some people impact my life. I don't know where the future takes me. People ask me all the time, are you done coaching? Are you not done coaching? I've always been a planner. I've always been like goal oriented. By this stage, I want to be here. By this stage... For the first time in my life, I live day to day. I come in every day. I give DelVal everything I can. You know what the future holds six months from now, six years from now. I don't know. I don't know. This is what I'm doing today. And I've always been thankful for the opportunity that's been presented to me. That mindset takes you so far because one, you're living in the present moment. You're not worried about a future that you can't affect or a past you can't change. And then there's that one quote, I forget who says it, but it's man plans, God laughs. Because you have no idea. If someone told you three years ago, what's your five-year plan? Like, it's laughable. COVID, no one saw that coming. Yeah. Like, the, the, the things that just change everyone's life, you can't plan for that. Putting a five-year plan together is almost like a lesson in futility. There's, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone five years from now. So kudos to living in the moment and just bringing it every day. I uh, want to shift gears here a little bit, a little part that we call share your secrets so people can learn a little bit more about you as a person. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? That's a really good question. I would probably have to say, I'd have to really go back to, as I said, when I was 15, I think that was the biggest challenge in my life because I, I don't, again, to your point, how do you plan for that? You don't. And it happened so suddenly, like it wasn't like my father was sick. He had a heart attack. I saw him one night and the next one, not, it was over. That's how quick it happened. And the, that happened in 1981. And at that time, some of the things they would do for a heart attack now, that's like a layup. They didn't have it available to him back in 1981. So it was just so sudden that you were like, I don't know. I don't know how you can't describe that. So I would say that was the biggest, that was the, probably the biggest challenge that was part of my life. And from that challenge, you learned that there are certain things you just cannot plan for. But like you just said about your current position here at DelVal, you show up and you bring your A game every day. That's all you can do. You can live in the moment, do what you can with what you have in the present moment. There's, that's all you can really do. Yep. What failure of yours set you up for future success? Do you have a favorite failure as you look back that launched you to a place that you probably wouldn't have gone unless it happened? I think we've all had different failures. I, I would probably say from a professional standpoint, I, I can remember my first year at DelVal, we had uh, we had won a game early, but we were like one in six. And we were playing in a tournament all the way up in Elmira, New York. And we were playing a game against a really bad team in a consolation game. And I really only had one decent player and he got elbowed in the nose. And right at the end of the game, he had a bloody nose and they wouldn't let him back in the game. And there was no trainer on site. So he's trying to stop the bleeding and the refs wouldn't let him go back in. And when he was in the game, we had a two point lead. We end up losing by three. And I remember talking to my wife after the game, losing a game that I thought we could win because there weren't many of them. And I remember saying to her, this will never happen again. I will never have another year like this and feel like this after every game. 
I don't know what it was about that moment or that game of just saying that'll never happen. And it never happened again. Like I never felt that way. I think it all came from, we failed seven of our first eight times. There's a point there where you decided everything starts with the decision. You decided and you had the mindset, this isn't going to happen anymore. And your actions from that point forward, you did everything possible so that you were never in that situation again. Yep. How about when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body? What do you do? I actually enjoy times when I could be by myself with my thoughts, and that might be taking a walk. I love to work out. It might be just at the gym, might be on a treadmill, but I like it when I could do it by myself because I think we all need that. Sometimes I think it's hard as a leader, both as a coach or as an administrator. Uh, to turn the thoughts off. I think that's a big challenge. Like when you go to bed at night and your body's tired, but your mind's not ready to shut down. That's always been a challenge for me. Like when do you shut it off? But usually I'll take a, I, I like taking a walk or working out. That's usually my time to be by myself in my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Is there a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? I, I read a lot and I, I like reading people's biographies a lot. And then I also like reading books that involve the military. I've just got finished one, Staring Down the Wolf. It's about our own fears. One of the reasons I've always read about the military is because I think if you could ever apply the military to your own team, because think about the military, you never hear about individuals' names. You don't even know who they are. You might hear the Army, the Navy the Marines, the Air Force, but you never hear about individual people. Yet in the world that we coach, this generation of kids is so individualistic. I want to tweet about myself. I want to read about myself. But when I always talk to them about military stories, I say, watch, here's a story about a success or a failure. And no one's name is ever mentioned. It's just their group. All the stories about them, they really do put their life in another person's hands. And that's why I hate when sports all the times are related to we're going to war, we're going to battle. No, you're not. That's insulting those people who do that. And again, I'm fascinated by things that involve the military. What is your personal definition of success? That's a really good question. I think you are successful if you could look in the mirror and be proud of what you see. I've always said, the only person in your life that really won't lie to you ever is the man in the mirror because they know the truth. If you're able to look in the mirror and say, am I proud of that person? Do I put my head on the pillow e each night and say, yep, I'm comfortable putting my head on the pillow because of what I did today or how I affected someone or something like that. I think you are successful if when you do your own self-evaluation, you feel you're successful. Now, everybody has a different degree of how they would judge success. That's what I've always did. I, I, I never needed anyone to compliment me or also say I didn't do a bad job because I think I've always been my own best critic. Self-evaluate. Aristotle or somebody said, know thyself. No one knows you better than you. And if you mailed it in or if you gave everything, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I don't know if it's exciting. But I think just having gone through a year of COVID where, where my job changed, there was no textbook. Like when you're trying to get sports started up again and you're doing things that you never did before, like testing student athletes, protocols having to be in place. I think it was really challenging because it changed every. You know yourself by going through the pandemic. One day you were allowed to do this. One day you're allowed to do this. Next day you couldn't do this. I don't think it was exciting but I do think it was unbelievably challenging because no one had a blueprint for it. And there was no one you could go to, to say, Hey, the last time you went through this, what did you do? We were all going through it together and it's still going, it's still ongoing. But I love the fact that sports are back and there's some type of regular activity on a college campus. Just having a Saturday afternoon football game with people in the stands, that's a victory. It really is because we didn't have it for 18 months. Small victories are huge when you're not having any victories. Like you're in the middle of yeah. COVID and nothing's going on. A small victory is, is a big victory. Wrapping up here, last few questions. What values do you try to pass on to your student athletes? And it's really hard with this generation because since I've been coaching, the generation's really changed. 
this is really a me generation. So when I talk to kids today, like all my coaches have me talk to their recruits and I say, look, here's what I want for you. When you're done, I want you to have a positive experience. But your definition of a positive experience and mine are two different things. If you ask them, positive experience would be, I made all league. I scored X amount of points. I had X amount of goals. Mine is this, that when you leave college, you met friends for life that someday when you walk down the aisle, you're going to look behind you and say, my groomsmen or my bridesmaids, they were from X school. When you're at your wedding reception and someone says, damn, who are those crazy kids at table nine? They're my college buddies. Then you had a positive experience because that's what I think it's like when you get together with your high school friends. I do it all the time now. I love it. But when I get together with my friends that I play basketball with, even though the stories always get embellished over the years, everybody lies a little bit more, but they're never about, hey, remember when I scored 20 points? Remember, it's always about, hey, remember the party after the game? Remember that bus ride? Remember, that's when you know you had a positive experience. So that's what I try to get across. To Last two questions here. If you could go back and talk to your parents around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? I, I would probably say the most important words, thank you and I love you. I, I don't know if I could add anything more. That's just for the life lessons that you hope make the person who you are today. That's great. And last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Yeah. It's a tough one to answer. I think in one word, I would hope everybody would feel this way. I think, I hope everybody would put the word family on there because I think that one of the things you learn in life, when good times are happening, there's a lot of people around. A lot of people want to be part of that. But when the hard times come, you, you really learn who, who is family and how important they are to you. That is awesome. Family. I think that is about as good as a spot to end as any. Dave Duda, thank you for joining us. It's been an honor catching up and thank you for sharing your story. Fantastic stuff. Chick, anytime. Glad to help you out. And it was great sharing an hour with someone I hadn't seen in such a long time. If people are looking for you, your program, DelVal Online, uh, where can they find what you're all what you're doing on social media? We are on every everything. DelVal DVU Aggies is all that's our handle for Twitter, Instagram, everything. DVU Aggies on, on all the socials. Yep. That is great. All the, all the socials. Dave Duda, thank you. Wish you continued success. Best of luck this year, and I wish you nothing but uh, great things in your future, buddy. All yep. the best. Keep keep up. Keep spreading the good word, chick.